A time was set for parade and roll call. There weren't too many of us left to answer our names. If there was no response when a name was called, the sergeant would shout out, Anybody know anything about him? Sometimes someone replied. More often, there was silence. My impression was that we had won the ridge and lost the battalion. These were the words of Corporal H.C. Baker of the 28th Battalion Canadian Infantry after his unit's final attack on the Passchendaele Ridge in November of 1917. This week, we're back in Flanders and we're walking the grounds up and into Passchendaele Village. Welcome to the old front line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Each week I give you a glimpse into the history of the Great War and we walk the battlefields from Ypres to the Somme and beyond. So let's head out once more onto the old front line. We begin our walk this week on the junction of two minor roads not far from the vast Tynecott Cemetery in Flanders, just outside the city of Ypres. We're standing on Tynecott Strat, named after the cemetery, and ahead of us is Canada Lane, Canada Lane, leading up and into the village of Passchendaele itself. We're in a valley. Behind us are the trees of what was known during the war as Berlin Wood. When we look at the trench map of this area, we're standing on a place called Waterfields, and just across to our left was Marsh Bottoms. And this gives you some indication of the nature of the ground here. It's not called the Wet Flanders Plain for nothing. This ground easily becomes sodden, particularly after heavy rainfall, which is exactly what happened in the summer of 1917. It was the wettest summer in living memory. The rain saturated the ground in exactly the same way that shells saturated the ground and destroyed that ground, along with it, all of the drainage systems. So that meant that when the rain fell, it went into the trenches, it went into the shell holes, and it turned that mud into liquid mud, in which men, guns, tanks disappeared. Just behind us to our right is a riding school, and on a good day you can stand here and see young people being taught how to ride horses. And it brings to mind the horses that pulled the guns and the limbers and the mules that brought up the ammunition and supplies right onto this battlefield and too succumbed not just to enemy fire but to the conditions here on this battlefield arguably one of the worst in which any British and Commonwealth soldiers served during the First World War. This ground was taken by Australian troops in the Battle of the Brunsinder Ridge on the 4th of October 1917 when General Monash's 3rd Australian Division pushed forward and captured these positions, or what was left of them. There were trenches marked on his maps, but most of these were full of water, and the Germans had retreated in places to shell holes, or used small concrete emplacements with machine guns in to defend their line. Across to our right, near where the cemetery is, there was a bigger line of bunkers, and some of those are still there, and we will return to Tynecott Cemetery in a future Old Frontline podcast. But when the Canadians took over this ground towards the end of October, relieving the Australian troops, they inherited a front line that was a complete nightmare. There were no fixed positions, no front line, no support line, no reserve line, 
just a series of defended shell holes in which men had to live waist high in mud and muck and slime on a daily basis. But not just live, they had to fight here as well. This wasn't a static position, this was the tail end of the Third Battle of Ypres, popularly called the Battle of Passchendaele, but Passchendaele had not yet been taken and the Canadian Corps under its new commander, Sir Arthur Curry, had been brought in to fight that final battle for Passchendaele village and around it the Passchendaele Ridge. Third Ypres was a battle for high ground, as was much of the war in Flanders, a battle for the possession and repossession of these low ridges. Why capture them? Well, the Germans had dominated this ground for almost two years, from the end of the Second Battle of Ypres in May of 1915 until the beginning of the Third in July of 1917. They'd set up on this so-called high ground, most of it no more than tens of metres above sea level, and had dominated the battlefield. Third Eat was the attempt to change all that, to push the Germans off the high ground and for us to possess it. It would be a battle that would last several months and cost the British Army over 300,000 casualties, killed, wounded and missing. Siegfried Sassoon wrote, I died in hell, they called it Passchendaele, and it has become a battle synonymous with the horror, often the futility of the First World War, of men being sent into this mud-soaked landscape, a vast crater zone of shell holes that seemed to extend into infinity. This was the sacrificial ground of 1917, and it's too simplistic to see it just in terms of mud and blood and barbed wire. Passchendaele was a battle of extremes. There were wet and muddy days, even snow, but at some points during the summer of 1917, it was hot and the ground was so hard that shells bounced off it. And the capture of these low ridges was vital. When you walk the ground today, you can see the views that they afford. And once you've taken one and another is ahead of you, you've got to keep going. And you can only stop when you get to the final ridge. And here, the final ridge was at Passchendaele. Standing here, you think of the accounts of Canadian soldiers who were here in 1917. And I've mentioned the Journal of Private Fraser before. This was a book written by a Canadian soldier, not published in his lifetime. He was a Scotsman who'd emigrated to Canada before the Great War. Initially, he served on the Somme and at Ypres with the Canadian Infantry, and by the time of Passchendaele, he was serving in a machine gun team in the Canadian Machine Gun Corps. His unit took over this part of the line around Waterfields in late October 1917, and he left this description of the ground here. The countryside was bare and open, and looked as if it had been fought over recently. Shell holes were everywhere, and most contained slimy, muddy water. The terrain was a wilderness of mud. We watched the shells send up fountains of mud and water as they exploded. For quite some distance, you could see eruptions taking place at various points, resembling geysers or mud volcanoes. And it was into this unearthly land that the Canadians, under General Curry, took over this ground in preparation for the next offensive. The Canadians had learned many lessons in 1917, particularly from their great offensive at Vimy Ridge in April of 1917, when the ridge had been captured. The Canadians knew, as did many commanders of this period, how to invest in the infrastructure of the battlefield to ensure victory. And this meant, before you sent your men into an attack, 
You built up your ability to get them there by providing networks of roads and tracks to get them onto the battlefield. You built up the artillery that you needed for the bombardment, your field artillery and your heavy guns. You looked at the ability of tanks to take part in your assault here at Passchendaele because of the ground that would not be possible. And then you looked at what defences lay before you. The Canadians went for a bite and holes process which had been used by several units in this stage of the Battle of Passchendaele. Limited objectives, maximum amounts of troops, artillery and weaponry to achieve those objectives, to capture them. So on the 26th of October, the first Canadian assault goes in. The bigger one takes place just ahead of us, down this valley beyond Waterfields, on the 30th of October. And over the course of the next 10 days, the Canadians move forward, bit by bit, across this ground to the village of Passchendaele we can see in the distance. You can just see from here the spire of Passchendaele Church. From where we're standing to the other side of that spire took over 10 days of fighting and cost the Canadians 16,000 men killed, wounded and missing. It was a victory that captured the village of Passchendaele and the Passchendaele Ridge, but a costly one and a battlefield that most Canadians, I suspect, wanted to forget. From here we'll take the Canada line ahead of us and we'll walk down and up this valley towards Passchendaele. Over to our left we'll see a little stream, the Rava Beak, running up through the valley and it was this little stream, this beak, that was smashed to pieces by the artillery fire and flooded this valley. Today it looks innocuous, it looks impossible that it could have had such a catastrophic effect on this ground. But this was the nature of the battles in Flanders, how the geology here played an important role in the outcome and the lives of men on the ground. After walking past a modern farm building, we eventually come up to another junction of tracks. There's Bornstraat on our left. And here we can look across the fields just over some trees and see the rooftops of some farm buildings. This was Duck Lodge, and here in the attack on the 30th of October 1917, the men of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry made their attack. They were a Canadian regiment formed in 1914 in Canada of men who had previously served in the British Army. 70% of all the original enlistments in the Canadian Expeditionary Force at the beginning of the war were men born in Great Britain and this unit had a very high proportion of them, all of them ex-regulars. It was said that almost every regiment in the British Army was represented amongst the men who joined this original battalion. It was named after the daughter of the Governor-General of Canada, who was himself a grandson of Queen Victoria, so she was a member of the British Royal Family. When the regiment set sail for the Western Front in the winter of 1914, it became the first Canadian infantry battalion to go into the trenches in Flanders. Many of its originals were lost in the Second Battle of Ypres on the Belouarda Ridge or in the fighting for Hill 62 in June of 1916 and then later on the Somme. But it continued to fight at Vimy, at Hill 70 and then here at Passchendaele. One of its officers, one of its original officers, was Major Talbot Papineau and he was killed near Duck Lodge leading his men into the attack. He'd fought in the early battles with the battalion and then transferred to the staff. He'd stayed in that staff role and in fact he accompanied the Canadian official photographer around the battlefields like Corselet 
and he appears in many of the photographs from that period. He was good at his staff work, but he received in the summer of 1917 a letter implying that somehow he was skulking at the base, dodging the duty in the front line, and that couldn't be ignored. He put him for a transfer back to his old battalion, and he was sent to join them just prior to the Third Battle of Ypres, and was killed leading his men over the top at zero hour. Most people listening to this podcast will never have heard of Talbot Papineau, but he's arguably one of the most important Canadians to be killed in the Great War. Well, why was that? Papineau was a protégé of the then Canadian Prime Minister, and many historians accept that if Papineau had survived the war, then he too would have gone on to become Prime Minister of Canada himself. He came from a privileged background. He lived, compared to most Canadians, in luxury before the war. But living in the trenches experiencing the same conditions as his men how would this have changed his view of those men of ordinary men of life politics we can only but imagine his was a life cut short a promise of greatness never fulfilled his body fell into a shell hole what was left of it was found and buried but the exact location of his grave lost and today his name is found on the Gate memorial at Ypres where the last post is sounded every evening He wrote an incredible series of letters to his mother. In one of them he said, Always remember I could not love thee so well, or you love me. Did I not love honour more? You have given me the courage and strength to go very happily and cheerfully into the good fight. Somehow it seemed as if Papineau represented the very best of Canada, a brilliant young man with so much promise. But the war consumed him, and he's someone who has fascinated me for many, many years. My daughter, Poppy, has a middle name that connects her to Talbot Papineau. And some years ago, while under the Menin Gates, a Canadian film crew was there making a documentary about the Great War. And I met one of Papineau's descendants. What an experience. I think they were genuinely surprised that someone from Britain had even heard of Talbot Papineau. So it's with thoughts of him and the Princess Pats who attacked across this ground to our left, through those muddy shell holes, that we continue our walk up this winding lane, gradually moving uphill to the Canadian Memorial at Cress Farm. This Canadian Memorial here at Cress Farm is one of six sites commemorated with a 13-tonne Stansted granite block designed by Percy Nobbs, one of the chief architects of Canadian memorials connected to the Great War. This one overlooks the battlefields where the Canadians were fighting during the Third Battle of Ypres, the Battle of Passchendaele, where those 16,000 casualties, of which over 5,000 were killed, were suffered. From here you have a good view into Passchendaele village, and this spot, what was left of Cress Farm, was captured by the 72nd Seaforth Highlanders of Canada on the 30th of October 1917. It took another 10 days to get to the other side of the village from where we're standing now. Very little of Passchendaele was left, just rubble, piles of rubble, the biggest one being where the church was located. And as the battle reached its conclusion, snow fell, blotting out the landscape, bringing the Third Battle of Ypres to its conclusion with the capture of Passchendaele village and the Passchendaele ridge. Now we held the high ground, The Germans could no longer see into the centre of Ypres and over this sacrificial ground which had cost us so many lives in 1917. 
but our tenure here was a short one, and the Germans attacked across this ground in April 1918 during what we called the Battle of the Lease, and retook it from us. All that ground that we'd wrestled from them in the Battle of Passchendaele, all those lives, and the ground was retaken in a matter of a few days. But what good did the recapture of that ground in 1918 do them? By the time Passchendaele fell into the hands of the Canadians, it was taking the average unit to move from the outskirts of Ypres up to the front line around Passchendaele about 18 and a half hours, an incredible amount of time considering that as the crow flies this was under nine miles. It took such a long time because of the conditions on the battlefield. The infrastructure that the Canadians had built in the preparation for this battle, the trackways and the roads, supplemented by the work of the Labour Corps, repairing these roads, constructing new ones. Sure, it got men across this ground, but it took a long time, and the Germans targeted those trackways and roads and destroyed them on a regular basis. So it meant, effectively, that our lines of communication from the rear area around Ypres up to the front line at Passchendaele was not entirely cut, but severely restricted. So in the spring of 1918, when the Germans attacked and broke through here, and retook all of that ground once more, by the time that they got to the outskirts of Ypres, it was taking them 18 hours to move across that smashed ground from behind their lines up to the new front line around the Menin Road or Hellfire Corner. So it slowed down the whole momentum of their battle. And these are things that we have to think about and discuss when we look at the importance of territory in the battles of the Great War. But standing here at Crest Farm and we look around these plush fields and there are some very nice houses on this edge of Passchendaele village, it's hard to imagine the conditions as they were here in 1917. But some of the most iconic images of the Great War were captured in this ground by photographers who got up onto the battlefield. One that always haunts me is the picture of the Canadian machine gun team in the shell hole, a Vickers machine gun and its gunner looking back at the camera. That was Reginald Lebrun, a veteran who lived well into his 80s, who was interviewed by Lynn MacDonald in her book they called it Passchendaele. His account as that photograph was taken reads, They pushed the machine guns right out in front. There was nothing between us and the Germans across the swamp. Three times during the night they shelled us heavily, and we had to keep on spraying bullets into the darkness to keep them from advancing. The night was alive with bullets. By morning of our team of six, only my buddy Toombs and I were left. Then came the burst that got Toombs. It got him right in the head. His blood and his brains, pieces of skull and lumps of hair, spattered all over the front of my greatcoat and gas mask. I stood there, trying to wipe the bits off. It was a terrible feeling to be the only one left. The desolation and the destruction and, and living like Lebrun and so many other veterans in that landscape, is hard for us to imagine. I always remember my old veteran friend James Lovegrove, Smiler Lovegrove, recounting that the Battle of Passchendaele for him was just hell on earth. He was here as a young officer, a young second lieutenant. I'll put some pictures up on the podcast website. He looks a very young man indeed, no more than a child, but there he was in charge of a platoon. He had some air photos of the Battle of Passchendaele as that was in 1917, this vast crater zone of these shell holes full of water. And they look like the face of the moon. And it's hard to imagine anything surviving, living, let alone fighting in that landscape. 
for men like James Lovegrove and Reginald Lebrun, and the many thousands of others of both sides fought and suffered and somehow came through, but were forever changed by their experience of Passchendaele. Passchendaele, in my experience of interviewing the veterans in the 1980s, was a name never uttered lightly. It was not said with reverence still after, in those days, 70 years. It was said with a degree of fear. And it was a place that they never really wished to see again. When I describe the modern village to them, a place now more famous for its beer and its cheese than any connection to the Great War, they could hardly believe that somehow it had been reclaimed from the swamp. Surely, Passchendaele, nothing could ever come back from that. But it did. Life moved on, and birds sing in the trees above Crest Farm. Leaving the Canadian Memorial behind us, we walk down the road and into Passchendaele Village. It will take us not even tens of minutes to do so today, but in 1917 that time scale was much greater. It was days, nearly two weeks, to get from one side of the village to the other. The village and the church were rebuilt, the church pretty much on its original size and scale, and we'll go in through the main door. Many people come to Passchendaele but are not aware of what is in this church. It's a place I always try to visit and have brought many, many groups here over the years. So as we walk to the left-hand transepts in that corner of the church, we see a series of stained glass windows. This is a divisional memorial. It commemorates the men of the 66th East Lancashire Division. This was an East Lancashire Territorial Division formed of battalions recruited in that part of Lancashire, raised on the outbreak of the war, it had been used as a reserve formation and had spent most of its first two years defending the Suffolk coast. In February 1917, it was finally sent overseas. It took over the top end of the Western Front, close to the Belgian town of Newport on the Channel coast, and it moved down to take part in its first battle in October 1917, during the Battle of the Brunsinder Ridge as part of the Third Battle of Ypres. When it went into the attack during that period, it suffered heavy losses, and although this was 1917, not the Somme, the battalions of the Lancashire Fusiliers, the Manchester Regiment and the East Lancashire Regiment within it still retained a very high proportion of their original men recruited from the localities in which these battalions had been raised. They were, in effect, sorts of POWs battalions. So when they went into an attack here and lost heavily, the same catastrophic effects on those localities was felt at this late stage in the war. Territorial units tended to have a very strong old comrades association after the First World War, and there's usually a connection between that and the raising of a divisional memorial. And this division, this East Lancs division, was no different. The old comrades decided that they would place not an obelisk or a statue, but a practical memorial, stained glass windows to the new Passchendaele church, which overlooked the battlefield where so many of their comrades had died. They also helped with funds towards the rebuilding of the actual church itself. So when we stand here, this is not just a commemoration of the men, this is not just a celebration of victory. This is a hope towards a new world, a world beyond the swamp, the morass of Passchendaele, beyond the destruction of the Great War, a world in which children could play and laugh again and people rebuild their lives. And I guess they hoped it would make the sacrifice seem worthwhile. So as we come out of the church, no doubt 
the bells in the tower will ring, the sounds of the modern world will surround us, and we are quite literally a world away from what happened here in 1917. Passchendaele is an affecting battlefield, a defining moment in the Great War, like the Somme. It will be forever in our consciousness, and while it's hard to find echoes of the hell that once walked this land in the quiet fields that surround this Flemish village, it acts as a powerful beacon to the Great War that connects us to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Front Line Pod and have a look at the podcast websites oldfrontline.co.uk Until we meet again along the Old Front Line. <laughs>